what we've seen in many states with respect to any forms of interventions, including vaccines, has always been a philosophical exemption, a religious exemption, or a medical exemption. You know, freedom. Yes, sir. Freedom. And states now are pulling back on some of these, particularly the philosophical objection. And in one state, they've effectively got it down to zero, which is the state of California that I'm aware of, meaning a parent cannot have control over what happens to that child in the pursuit of education. Joyful Warriors, this morning we are joined by Dr. Peter McCullough, and he's a hero of mine. He's probably a hero of yours. He was brave enough to take a stand when COVID hit, and we've just been discussing one of the most published individuals on COVID. You've testified in front of Congress. You're an uh, an internist, a cardiologist, um, and you have been a truth teller over the past few years. Um, Tina Deskovich and Moms for Liberty, we served on school boards, saw COVID, and there was something that happened with people. There were certain people in the world when COVID hit that felt that there was something different about this. Right. Tina shared with me that when she found out schools were closing, that she was hit with a, a, a reaction, a sadness that she knew was going to be very difficult to push through, that there's something was changing in our world. So what was that like for you? And it's interesting, people all over the world, a small group of people saw things differently, seemed to interpret what was going on more clearly without uh, confusion, without ambiguity. And it was almost as if fear had gripped a larger proportion of the population and it didn't have a, a hold on a smaller group of, of the population. And those who saw things clearly you know, didn't have fear of the virus. We knew it, it could be serious for our senior citizens and went about business as if, listen, we need to take care of important things like sure. our jobs and school and education and our children. And many of us fell in line with the Great Barrington Declaration, which I signed off in, in October of 2020. That said... We now understand this, protect our seniors, those at high risk, but don't shut down the schools, don't put people out of work, and don't go into lockdown. The Great Barrington, as it turns out now retrospectively, was the path we should have taken. And and of note, Anthony Fauci and the leaders in Washington, they directly criticized the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, the American authors were Abedachara and and Kaldorf and Gupta from Oxford. Jay Bhattacharya and Kaldorf, they're in my uh, frequent contributor group at Fox. It was directly criticized because they knew it was a threat to this government false agenda. Sure. And so Dr. Bhattacharya, Dr. Kaldorf um, became advisors of Governor DeSantis, um, speaking with him at different press conferences, helping to advise. And so I'm from Florida. We got to see very directly what freedom looked like through COVID. When you know we realized that there were certain things that were safe to do, we were able to move forward and do those things. And so we're very thankful for you and for those doctors. So March 13th, 2020, schools close. Uh, really, the world kind of comes to a stop. Right. Where are you on March 13th? March 13th, I was uh, leading a, a major program in a division at a major medical center, had oversight on many physicians, uh, large research group, fully funded, uh, redirected my research group towards 
approaches that could treat the illness, prevent the illness, had investigation of drug application with the FDA, uh, literally worked with them over a weekend, uh, became a co-leader of a new vaccine program for a cell-based vaccine, uh, was the named overall principal investigator for a innovative anti-inflammatory, um, anti-thrombotic product from Japan. And I was very much on the national scene early. I had previously had been focusing on heart and kidney disease. I was well known in the area. I was the most published person in the world in this topic and uh, had, had testified uh, at the Congressional Oversight Panel back in 2007, lectured at the New York Academy of Sciences, at the European Medicine Agency, the US FDA. So I was already a known entity. I had just changed my efforts because I saw this was such a big deal. We didn't see other doctors actually coming to the front. And then quickly we found out that doctors were going to abandon their patients and not treat them with the best of their abilities. And I think that's when I started to see the darkness really set in. Yeah, absolutely. And so you think about that time, schools are closing. Americans now start waking up and realizing that a lot of these associations, uh, a lot of the people that they have put confidence and trust in, maybe other elected leaders, are failing them, that there's an expert class that is sharing information with us, and we're realizing that maybe they're not telling the truth. The American Academy of Pediatrics comes out at one point and says, masks won't affect the relationship between a baby and a child. Moms viscerally knew that was wrong. They immediately knew, right, that, that, that your baby needs to see your face. And so we wake up to this idea of all these associations being captured by this ideology that COVID seemed to play right into. So for the American people, for you as a doctor, what is it like when you start seeing the American people losing trust in the medical field? Well, I started to jump into action and I uh, assembled a team, Italians, U.S. experts. Uh, we publish with as much speed as we can. Pu uh, academic publication is a very slow process, typically two to four years. I had it within uh, five months of the onset of this, uh, fully published in the American Journal of Medicine, a paper titled The Pathophysiologic Basis of Early Treatment for COVID-19 and laid out the first treatment protocol for America. It became the first home treatment guide. Uh, uh, you know, in the media, people asked me, Dr. McCullough, what about masks? I said, well, listen, I'm a cardiologist. I wear a mask in the cath lab, the operating room, and respiratory isolation when I see a patient. And you know, that is the boundaries for which a mask can be applied. I said that three years ago, and I said it now. Sadly, that's what our CDC says now. Our CDC says right. now, after all this, we only need a mirror and mask when we go in respiratory isolation. All the public health efforts, all the school board efforts, all of the uh, mass media efforts on public masking is a complete waste. A Cochrane analysis recently published by Ferguson and colleagues shows public masking was completely useless. Expert doctors like myself knew that and people didn't listen. No, they didn't listen. And then they forced masks on children and masks harmed some kids. I would argue that masks harmed all children's development, but particularly some children. So you have parents that are recognizing the mask is hurting their child for whatever reason. They're regressing in their development in some way. My child had, one of my kids has ADHD. It was very, very hard for him to wear a mask. I can't see, I can't hear mom. I feel like I can't breathe. 
difficult, difficult time. So parents now are sending their kids to school, but they're being forced to be complicit in the abuse of their children so their children can get an education. So doctors, the associations, how does this work? How do you have as a doctor, what does it mean to be a part of an association? And when associations take stands, like the American Academy of Pediatrics, mm -hmm. right? Um, what do you do as a parent when you recognize that there's an association that's trying to control the advice your own doctor is giving you? You know, that's a, actually a great question. The medical societies, what we call the medical colleges, largely are physician advocate organizations. Most of them are not advocating for the patient. Mm. Now, sometimes there's a parallel in uh, cardiology. We have the American College of Cardiology, which advocates for the doctors, and the American Heart Association for the patients. But the colleges and the associations previously don't take stands on other things. They can produce white papers, do analyses, uh, you know, sponsor conventions, allow scientific discourse, but don't take a stand. And how this became contaminated and actually became formalized was in 2021, uh, the Bi Biden White House and HHS uh, put forward the COVID Community Core Program. The website's called We Can Do This. $13 billion flowed out from the government no, no accounting oversight, no voting on this. They're considered countermeasures, like we're in a wartime national security right. operation, countermeasures, and a prominent recipient of this is the American Association of Pediatrics, American College of Pediatrics, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And before we know, these organizations are taking a tremendous stand, not only on masks, lockdowns, vaccination with no clinical uh, uh, ass assertions, no confidence that these could be safe or effective. So I'm a mom of four, I've been pregnant five times, lots of direction when you're pregnant. Don't drink, right? Don't eat any cold cuts. Be care you know, be careful what medicines that you take. You know, we hear now about acetaminophen and other medicines possibly that pregnant women have taken for years that could be, have caused issues with their children. But in general, when you're pregnant, you're told to be very, very careful about what you're putting into your body, right? But the vaccine didn't seem to be that much of an issue as far as the government was concerned in pregnant women. In fact, my husband worked with someone who lost her job because she wasn't able to get vaccinated at six months pregnant. So, and she refused to do that. So curious, what is that? To me, that was a signal. You know, I went on Tucker Carlson early in 2021, and he asked me, you know, how did, how, when did you know things were, were, were going off the rails? I said, well, in the clinical trials, when the companies did the clinical trials and the FDA and the institutional review boards all had oversight, they strictly excluded pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, COVID recovered and suspected COVID recovered because... They knew the vaccines could harm these groups. There was very good rationale that harm would be given. So they had to be excluded. In the first week of the vaccine campaign, starting December 10th, 2020, thousands of pregnant women were vaccinated. So the questions are, what was going through the minds of the pregnant women? This is December 10th of 2020. What was in the minds of the people in the vaccine centers and then the doctors? And then it wasn't too long before the doctors were telling pregnant women to take the vaccines, unprecedented. The vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. They contain the genetic code for the lethal Wuhan spike protein. 
it, the genetic code installs in all the cells in the body where it's touched by the lipid nanoparticles. The spike protein is produced. It's expressed on cell surfaces. The body attacks the cell surfaces, causing tissue damage in blood vessels, causing blood clotting, can cause bleeding. The FDA, within a few months, say the vaccines cause heart damage, brain damage, uh, blood clots, and immunologic damage. So it's clear they have a dangerous mechanism of action. I was so upset about this, I reached out to Dr. Raphael Stricker in California. He supervises the largest fetal loss center in the United States, on the West Coast, and it deals with patients with lupus and other uh, uh, problems. He's actually a hematologist, immunologist. And Ray and I published uh, an op-ed. We said the vaccines are pregnancy category X. X means should not be used. And virtually every drug introduced on the U.S. market for many years is pregnancy category X. We put this out there. I recently uh, uh, asserted this uh, in a substack where I emphasize a manuscript that's coming forward by Dr. James Thorpe, who's a, a maternal fetal medicine specialist, myself, other experts, where we have identified anywhere from a two to you know, a 10, 20, 30-fold increased risk compared to the influenza vaccine, which actually is given during pregnancy, of fetal loss, so miscarriage in the first trimester, stillbirth beyond 20 weeks, fetal abnormalities, so uh, problems with the amniotic fluid, uh, low birth weight babies, uh, hemorrhagic uh, uh, infantile syndromes, this is a, 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 a categorical disaster. Now, in my Substack, I emphasize there's 30 papers published that say the vaccines are safe in pregnancy. 30 papers. Now, how can that be? One, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology took federal money. Most of these doctors are actually are linked to ACOG, so that's an immediate conflict of interest. And number two, they look at a small sliver of time. And if a pregnancy is nine months and then we need to observe for a long time afterwards, they look at a small sliver and say, oh, we didn't see anything here. And so these manuscripts are biased. And so what I've said is if there's 30 papers that don't see the signal and one paper does, which one do we follow in safety research? We follow the one, one. paper. We're conservative and we care. We're not going to brush this under the rug. So pregnant women don't get this vaccine? Absolutely, under no circumstances from the beginning. To make matters worse, in JAMA last year, Hannah and colleagues published that the messenger RNA is coming through breast milk now to the baby. And in this paper, it says it must be everywhere in the uh, oral and urogenital secretions, breast milk, sweat. Now a paper from Castriuta and colleagues has identified circulating messenger RNA for at least 28 days in the bloodstream. It is horrifying, honestly, to think about the fact that women, you get pregnant, you try so hard to take care of your baby when your baby's inside of you, and the fact that women would have been put into this situation to be harming their babies, not knowing that, to be harming themselves, is, is horrifying. And, and I think, you know, we deal right now with uh, an American public that is very concerned about whether or not they can trust their doctors, whether they can trust their government, right? And then it brings us to schools. And we talk about schools and education. So I'd like to talk with you just at the end of this interview, mm. if we could, let's talk about uh, the CDC. Uh, CDC has a very large footprint in our schools, larger mm. than most people know. They would like to do something called community schools. It's the whole school, whole child, whole community model, WISC, where they'd like to put medical clinics into all of the schools across the country. In fact, they'd like to take the school and make it the community hub. Uh, so they'll have a medical clinic in the school. What does it say to you as a doctor? We're lowering the age of informed consent to 12 in many states. And the CDC would like to have uh, all of the community's medical needs being met in these schools. 
schools. Talk to me a little bit about what you think that looks like for the future of America, the money that would end up going into these schools and the control the federal government would have possibly by doing that. Yeah, I have decades of experience taking care of patients as a clinical doctor, but also leading research. And I've spent a lot of time on informed consent and with institutional review board work and also as a principal investigator. I can tell you under no circumstances is a child at age 12 able to give informed consent, making risks and benefit decisions for themselves. Or know their medical history for that matter, right? Uh, You know, understanding their medical history uh, uh, and actually making decisions that could be life-determining or life-threatening for them in terms of injuries, disabilities, and death. The CDC now, just emulating the World Health Organization, is in a giant, catapulting, hyperbolic overreach of power. Our CDC traditionally did outbreak analysis, uh, in vitro diagnostics, and data analytics. And they, they provide a resource to doctors. The CDC works for me, they work for you, they work for the public. In no circumstance does the CDC now begin to intervene. The CDC has actually never led a major national intervention program. The prior one they led with the Public Health Service decades ago was Tuskegee, and it was an absolute disaster. It was actually considered one of the biggest ethical breaches in terms of uh, uh, letting uh, men in a, in a town in Alabama progress with syphilis. And, and so the CDC decades ago couldn't be trusted with leading a national program. And now this idea that they be in the schools, uh, several important points. Per- medical autonomy for a child and the legally authorized representative, the LAR, is always centered around the patient and the parents. Okay, this is very, very important. Consent for treatment, and this extends to school, camping trips, going skiing, etc. It always localizes there. It's very, very important, always localized there. The parents know the children the best. This is a very important principle. They know the child the best. And the freedom of choice on any medical intervention is the ultimate a uh, 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 right to hang on to. What we've seen in many states with respect to any forms of interventions, including vaccines, has always been a philosophical exemption, a religious exemption, or a medical exemption. You know, freedom. Yes, sir. Freedom. And states now are pulling back on some of these, particularly the philosophical objection. And in one state, they've effectively got it down to zero, which is the state of California that I'm aware of, meaning a parent cannot have control over what happens to that child in the pursuit of education, namely running the full suite of childhood vaccinations. Now, personally, I've taken all the vaccines in the schedule my kids have. I haven't critically reviewed them at the time they took them. Uh, but Do you I, feel uh, differently uh, now? Uh, well, you know, I, what I'm saying is yeah. I, in no way could I ever be uh, accused of being an anti-vaxxer. Right. However, you, you will see that all over the media. I just testified in the Mississippi House of Representatives, and it says anti-vaxxer doctors. Dr. McCullough, a known anti-vaxxer. How can I be an anti-vaxxer? I took all the vaccines. Right. My kid took all the vaccines. I went to India. I took more vaccines. But the COVID-19 vaccine, which I did not take, and I, I published an op-ed on this before they came out saying, I thought this was going to be a gamble. I published it in The Hill, the great gamble of the vaccine development program for COVID. Putting the COVID-19 vaccines, emergency use authorized temporary, on a permanent childhood vaccine schedule 
was a breach of public trust. It was a gross act of scientific malfeasance. And now parents are becoming very, very uncomfortable. I understand their stance. Uh, The Kaiser Family Foundation recently came out with a survey showing large numbers of parents are becoming vaccine hesitant over Mm -hmm. their children. I am now starting to critically review all of these vaccines. Thank you. One by one by one. And arriving at the uh, notion that instead of being mass vaccination for everything, to have a much more personalized and targeted approach. Um, you know, I'm a doctor. I deal with blood and body fluids and needles. I took the hepatitis B vaccine because I need some protection for hepatitis B. But on day one, a, 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 a newborn right. being vaccinated for hepatitis B, the only circumstance I can tell you medically that would be indicated would be a, a, a child born to an active IV drug abusing mother. Outside of that, there is no reason to have that child have any type of perturbation of the immune system with hepatitis B. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate you joining us today. And I just want to say you're at CPAC. I'm at CPAC. I was never a political person. You were sharing with me earlier. This is not the world that you normally live in. You're a doctor doing your job. But here you find yourself involved now in in, uh, working on an issue that's becoming intensely partisan, intensely political, but never should have been. Parental rights is similar in that way. And so I just thank thank you for engaging and being willing to engage in in this way to be able to spread the truth of your message because the world needs it and America certainly does. So thank you, Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you. Thanks Very for having much. me. Thank you.